What I'm asking in this series is why do we believe what we believe? <clears throat> and the first week we asked the question, first of all, why do we believe there is a God? Answer is that nature and conscience testify to this. Um, God is clearly perceived in the things that have been made, Romans 1 tells us. And Psalm 19 tells us that all heavens declare the glory of God. And so men are without excuse if they do not perceive the existence of God. If, if a man does not perceive what the heavens declare, it is not the fault of the heavens. They are very clearly speak out the existence of a good creator. So we believe there is a God because of nature and conscience. And this can be, I think, demonstrated, as I tried to show in that first sermon, by logic, science, and morality. Last week, we asked the question, why do we, be why do we believe that we possess the truth about God? All right, so God exists. And I've always said that God talk is easy. <clears throat> it's easy to say it talk about God in general terms as the other or the creator. And there is value in that. There is value in that because as Hebrew tells us, Hebrews tells us, whoever comes to God must believe that he exists. So, it is important to talk about God, but we need to move on from that to Jesus Christ. So last week the question was, why do we believe that we possess the truth about God? Many, many religions grew out of a holy book. Islam has the Quran. Scientology has Dianetics. Mormons have the Book of Mormons. Why do we believe we possess the truth about God? And I hope I made it clear last week that Christianity did not grow out of a text. It grew out of an event in history. If Jesus rose from the dead and left an empty tomb behind him, then Christianity follows. So you're not reduced to comparing religions or religious claims. You just have to ask yourself one question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If he did not, we are all people most to be pitied. If he did, then... Christianity falls into place. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. It is a vindication of his claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, to have authority from God and to be the savior and the revealer of who God is. That's why we believe we possess the truth about God because God has demonstrated this through his resurrection. And then I talked about, I also gave you some evidence for the resurrection and some good books that you can read and debates on the resurrection. And I would encourage you to, to look into that. This week, I'm asking one more question. Because I've not said anything about the inspiration or authority of the Bible. Yes, Christianity follows from Christ's resurrection, period. But... We, in this church, we believe the Bible. We preach the Bible. We follow the pattern of the Bible. We speak about the Bible being the inspired and authoritative word of God. So the question today that I would like to ask is, why do we believe 
that the Bible is the authoritative word of God? The answer, as I see it, must begin and end with Jesus Christ. We believe, and Christians have believed throughout the centuries, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, not out of some arbitrary decision to choose one holy book over another. That's not how we arrive there. We believe that the Bible is the, whole, is the inspired word of God and is, author, is, is authoritative because it points to Christ and it teaches, tells us about Christ's gospel. The Old Testament is the history and contains the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate revelation of God the Father. In the New Testament, is the apostolic witness to Christ's saving work. So, we believe the Bible because it is an extension of Christ's authority. So I don't begin with a presupposition. I begin with Christ. Because the key verse today is Ephesians 2.20. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. He is the fullest revelation of God. And the apostles and the prophets bear witness to him. Now I want to unpack that today, briefly, as I can. And again, I... I this is, this, is this is going to be very much an overview. And I would love to expand on all these points. But I just want to get out the basic answers to common questions that set a foundation for our faith. The two questions I'm going to ask today are, number one, why do we believe the Old Testament is the inspired word of God? I've given a general answer to that question. I want to give a more specific answer. Number two, why do we believe the New Testament is the authoritative word of God? So let's, answer, let's ask that first question. Number one, why do we believe the Old Testament is the authoritative word of God? If you have your Bible, I'm going to do a lot of flipping around today, and I'd like you to open your Bibles with me and look, because... Um, I'd like these texts to be in your mind. Um, and I hope they kind of lodge there after this sermon. Be good to write them down even. The first one I want to look at is Matthew 4. Matthew 4. Jesus is preparing for his earthly ministry, and before he does, he goes out to... The desert. Matthew 4. And he is met there by Satan, the adversary. He's tempted by Satan. And we read, starting in verse 1, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here Jesus is tempted by Satan, and it's very interesting, I think, the pattern. What does Satan do? He casts doubt upon Jesus, and he appeals to his appetite. Where, where else do we see that pattern? Adam and Eve, where the Lord is, where Satan is casting doubt and appealing to the base passions of humanity, like the appetite. Well, we we know that Adam failed by choosing the word of Satan and Eve over the word of God. But when tempted here. Jesus succeeded at the very point that Adam failed and upholds the scripture as authoritative. And he doesn't say, I don't believe you. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, I believe. Not just get away from me. Not just what you speak is not truth, but it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus Christ believed that the Bible was authoritative, that the Old Testament, the Torah, was authoritative. That's one example. Let me go to another example. If you flip one page over and go to Matthew 5. Jesus is about to say, and I'm so tempted to explain this, but I will not because it will get us into something else. But Jesus is a, a going to get to the heart of what the law was pointing at all along. And Jesus' law is the fuller revelation. And so he will talk about the Old Testament law as, for example, allowing divorce. But Jesus will teach us that from the beginning it was not so. So the question on, for people during this time is, is Jesus abolishing the law and the prophets? Is he teaching some new religion? Is this something other than the God of Yahweh? And Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 and 18 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, heaven and earth will not pass away, not, will, until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. An iota is the smallest letter of the Greek, Greek alphabet, and a dot is a stroke of the pen that differentiates Hebrew letters from one another. So it's, it's the very finest details of the law will not pass away until all is accomplished. Now, that sounds like a man who takes the text that he's talking about as authoritative and important and inspired 
That's another example of Jesus believing the Old Testament was expired, in, expired, inspired. Let's go to Genesis 2.24 briefly. You know what? Genesis 2.24, and then I would like to go to hold your place there and also flip to Mark 12.36. Genesis 2.24, Mark 12.36, Matthew, Mark, Mark 12.36. Now, Genesis 2.24 is a comment about... Um, man being made male and female. Now, in the text of Genesis 2.24, God, there's a parenthetical comment here, and the text says, that's 3.24, the text says that, um, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What this is is a parenthetical comment based on what Jesus, what the Lord has done in verse 23. Previously, not just verse 23. He has created woman, and he has joined Eve to Adam. And Adam says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then you have a parenthetical comment in verse 24 that says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the text makes a comment about what just happened here. Now on Mark 12, 36, Jesus says, quoting this text, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, or created them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? I find it very interesting that he doesn't, Jesus doesn't say, and the text says, but he credits the parenthetical comment in, chat, in verse 24 to the speech of God. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That shows that Jesus had a very high view of Scripture more than a high view, he believed that when the scripture spoke, it was God speaking. So it's not as if there's more, there's so many more examples I'd like to give you, but I, I want to move on from this point. It's not as if Christ simply accommodated himself to his Jewish audience and, you know, and was just speaking in terms that would correspond to their sensibilities. His, what he says is too extreme for that. He says things like, 
Scripture cannot be broken in John 10.35. He says it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Luke 16.17. To the Sadducees, he says, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So the reason I believe the Old Testament and the reason Christians I believe the Old Testament is the inspired word of God from the beginning is because Christ believed it. And if a man rises from the dead and teaches that a text is the inspired word of God, it is the better part of wisdom to listen to him. So we do not just believe in Christ, we are disciples of Christ. And being disciples of Christ includes adopting his view of reality. And Jesus believed that the Old Testament scriptures were the authoritative word of God coming from his mouth. Second reason we believe that the Old Testament is authoritative is because it's a record of the history and promises that Christ fulfills. I just want to give two examples here from the book of Luke. If you'll turn with me to Luke 4. It is... The Old Testament is the record of the history and promises that are fulfilled in Christ. Deliberately fulfilled by Christ, by the way. In Luke 4, verse 16, we read that, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he was, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are opposed, oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of the whole synagogue were fixed on him. And he said to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is the biggest mic drop of the New Testament. I love that. He quotes, he finds the place, and I believe it's Isaiah 61, the servant of the Lord. And he quotes that passage, and he says, that is about me. So Jesus is intentionally fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about this servant of the Lord who stands in as a substitute for God's people and represents them and takes their sin upon himself. One more example, Luke 24, verse 25. Luke 24, verse 25. Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who said, uh, we had hoped that this Jesus was the Messiah, that the kingdom of God would come through him. And Jesus, reveals him, revealing himself to them, says these words. Now, does this sound like a man 
who believes the Old Testament is authoritative or not. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all of the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Two things happen here. Jesus chastens them for not paying closer attention to the prophets of the Old Testament. And then he gives them a sermon from Moses, that is the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, and teaches these two men that all of this was pointing to him all along. So the Old Testament is the history and the promises and the hope that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why we believe the Old Testament. And there's so much more that could be said. Moses said that the Lord would raise up a prophet like him in the later days. Daniel speaks about a shadowy figure called the Son of Man who would approach the Ancient of Days and receive a kingdom and authority. Isaiah writes about the servant of the Lord who would stand in for his people and be slaughtered on their behalf, making atonement for their sin. All of these things have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So I believe that the Old Testament is the inspired word of God, not because I've said, well, which Bible should I pick? Which word of God shall I pick? The Quran or the Dianetics or the Book of Mormon? I'll go with the Bible. That's not how we arrive there. We arrive there because Jesus Christ claimed to be the authority of God, rose from the dead, and believed that the scriptures were the inspired word of God and taught that he fulfilled them. That's how we get there. So there's God, God revealing himself primarily and fully in Christ, Christ teaching the authority and truth of scripture. Um, that's why. Christians have believed down through the centuries that the Old Testament is the authoritative and inspired word of God. A great little book on this is our, our seeing the Old Testament in light of Christ is called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament by Christopher Wright. A great book that just talks about the typology of the Old Testament being revealed in Jesus. I commend it to you. Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, Christopher Wright. Now, the next question then, having said that and knowing that I could say so much more about it, the next question is, why do we believe the New Testament is the authoritative word of God? Well, it has to do with what the New Testament is. The New Testament is a library of documents written by the apostles and those who were associated with the apostles. The apostles being 
those 12 people who were specially commissioned and empowered by God to advance his kingdom in the world in a unique way. So the New Testament comes from the apostolic witness of the first century. And this we're talking about eyewitness testimony. So we're not the New Testament isn't some philosophy textbook or some just religious text. It is based on what is claimed to be eyewitness testimony from the apostles. Listen to 1 John 1 or 1 John 1 1 through 3. John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And here's how he opens his letter. So what's he writing about? What's John writing about? Here's what he's writing about. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, you hear with ears, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too might have fellowship with us, that, that is amazing to me. He's not just saying, let me just let me talk to you about religion. Or let me talk to you about spiritual things. He's saying, I'm telling you something that I've seen, which I've heard, which I've touched, which I've experienced. The word of life, Jesus Christ. I'm giving you firsthand testimony to what I'm talking about. Not, some, not an abstract idea about virtue. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Here's another one from the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter 1.16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what we proclaim to you. Because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, he says. Now, it's not just eyewitness testimony. But it's eyewitness testimony from people who were especially commissioned and enabled by Christ. Let's go to Acts 1. Acts 1. Luke himself, not being a philosopher, but a historian, writes, In the first book, O, o Theophilus, which is a great name, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles, whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering 
by many proofs, appearing to them forty days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus tells specifically the apostles that they will be clothed with a unique power from the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, we read the Holy Spirit fell, and they were speaking with tongues. But although everyone who is a Christian receives the Holy Spirit, and although many were speaking in tongues upon reception of the Holy Spirit, it was uniquely the apostles who were doing amazing things. Acts 5.12 tells us that many signs and wonders were regularly being done by the people, by, uh, to the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico. So many signs and wonders were being done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles. Not everyone, although Stephen did amazing deeds, but it's interesting that the text points out specifically the apostles doing the extraordinary. Right after Acts 5.12, we read that Peter's, even Peter's shadow had a healing power to it. So God, I believe, Christ infused the apostles with a double portion of his spirit. Interestingly, interestingly, it is much like when Elisha asks Elijah, may I receive a double portion of your spirit? I believe that God, or Christ, gave a double portion of the spirit to the apostles so that that is why they were doing such bizarre and amazing things. Listen to Acts 5, 14 and 15. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes by, of both men and women, so that they even carried the sick, listen to this, they even carried the sick in the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, his shadow might fall on some of them. Now that is a unique measure of healing power by the Holy Spirit. Notice, it's not everyone's shadow that was healing people. It wasn't all Christians' shadows that people were trying to get in front of. It was just Peter's shadow. No one else's. Why? Why he was the rock upon which Christ was building the church. Interestingly, in Acts 1, 
There are three regions mentioned. He says, to the disciples, to the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I find it extremely interesting, and not just happenstance, that in Acts 2, when the Jewish people received the Holy Spirit, an apostle was there. When the Samaritans in Acts 8 received the Holy Spirit, an apostle was there. And in Acts 10, when the first Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, an apostle was there. An apostle needed to be present in order for the Holy Spirit to be given in a specific region, whether Judea, Samaria, or the ends of the earth. Now, if you think that what I'm saying might be a stretch, let me just back that up with Acts chapter 8, verse 14 through 18. Now, the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and they sent, so they received the word of God, right? The apostles at Jerusalem heard um, that Samaria had received the word of God. So what they do? So they sent Peter and John, the twelve, one of the two of the twelve, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them yet, but they had only been baptized, baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, not yet the Holy Spirit. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on the, uh, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. So, do you see what's happening here? People receive Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit has not fallen because Peter and John were not there to impart the Holy Spirit in in that region yet. They sent Peter and John. Peter and John laid their hands on them, and those people who had already received Christ received then the Holy Spirit. And the text connects then, in verse 18, the giving of the Holy Spirit with the laying on of the apostles' hands. Thus, the keys of the kingdom were given to the apostles specifically. Keys of the kingdom mentioned in Matthew 16. And the keys of the kingdom were opening up God's saving power to the nations in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, the Gentiles. And every time in a region where the Holy Spirit enters for the first time, an apostle is there. So they had unique power and they had unique authority. The apostle Paul, although not one of the original twelve, was specially commissioned by the Lord himself. And we know the story of the Apostle Paul. He was struck down on the Damascus Road. And I love Jesus' words. He says, I will show uh, to Matthias. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Filling up what is lacking in my afflictions. Now in Acts 19.11, Paul says, it says this about the Apostle Paul and his unique power. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, 
so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Not everyone's handkerchief was doing this. So if you watch TBN and they promise that, don't listen. Just the Apostle Paul's handkerchief. Not everyone's apron, just the Apostle Paul's. The Lord vested and empowered Paul with a unique power to carry out his mission among the Gentiles. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 asks the question, does he who supplies the Spirit and works miracles among you do it through the law or through faith? Perhaps referring to himself. Then, in Acts 2, we read that because these disciples were commissioned especially by Christ, doing amazing deeds, we read that in Acts 2, which is basically what this church is built on, that they devoted themselves to, among other things, the apostles' teaching. Not everyone's teaching, the apostles' teaching. Um, so, Michael Kruger, who's a New Testament scholar, in his book, Question of Canon, which is a good read, he says, Jesus has commissioned his apostles so that, quote, they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority, which is a direct quote from Mark 3, 14 and 15. When Jesus sent the twelve, he reminds them, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Thus he is able to give the warning to those who reject the apostles' authority and says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So apostle, in its fullest technical term, refers to the sent ones of the twelve who were sent and specially commissioned by Christ as an extension of Christ's authority. Um, now, to the New Testament documents, the New Testament documents themselves are the writings of the apostles and those who were directly associated with them. That's why we believe that they are authoritative, because they are written by people whom Christ gave authority to. So Matthew, John, 1st through 3rd John, the book of Revelation, the 13 epistles of Paul, 1st and 2nd Peter, were all written by apostles. Mark was a traveling companion of Peter, the apostle Peter. He wrote the gospel of Mark. Luke and Acts were written by a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. James and Jude, interestingly, were the Lord's brothers and had um, been given a position in the church. Hebrews is the only book we don't know exactly who wrote it, but we know it's come, it comes from the first century. 
He knows Timothy. He has a deep understanding of the old covenant being fulfilled in Christ. And it was written by a person who had first-person association with the apostles. And you can see that in Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. So again, Michael Kruger says, A written New Testament was not something the church formally decided to have at some later date, but was instead the natural outworking of the early church's view of the function of the apostles. So it's not like, hey, we need a bunch of authoritative texts. Which ones do you like? That wasn't the idea. It was, these are the writings from the apostles. Let's collect these and keep them. Because they are the extension of Christ's authority. So these are the documents from those who were directly commissioned by Christ and those who were with them. They were empowered by Christ and they wrote by Christ's authority and the agency of the Holy Spirit. And that is why they make up part of the canon. Canon means rule or measuring rod with which every other doctrine shall be measured. In God's providence, he has given us these writings so that we might live holy, faithful lives through the writings of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. A good book on this, a simple book on this, is How Did, how did We Get the Book? Yeah, How We Got the Bible by Timothy Paul Jones. How We Got the Bible. A good introduction to the formation of the canon. Now, two, two more things I want to say, briefly. Um, we believe so. I, we believe in this church that the Bible is an inspired, authoritative word of God. But I do want to make it clear that the fullest revelation is Christ himself. And Christ is the one whom the Old Testament scriptures point to. Let's go to John briefly. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. In John 5, verse 30. Seven, John five thirty seven. Jesus says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who sent me. You search the scriptures, because in them... You think you have eternal life, but it is they that, wear, that bear witness about me. So do you see what Jesus is getting at? He says, you think that the Old Testament will give you eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. This is something that we have perhaps gotten slightly backwards in evangelicalism. Because when we think word of God in evangelicalism, we think of the Bible, and then maybe, you know, that's it. But when the word of God is first Christ, then the Bible. 
because the Bible points to Christ. They bear witness about him. And it is the Bible's testimony itself that it bears witness to Christ. Hebrews 1. The author of Hebrews says, At many times and in many ways God spoke unto our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken unto us through a son, whom he has declared all things, and by whom also he has created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. So do you see, yes, God spoke to us by prophets, imperfect men long ago, and that's not to say the scripture is imperfect, but now he has given his fullest revelation in Jesus Christ, the exact imprint of his nature. So when we think word of God, we should think Christ, the fullest revelation, and the Bible pointing to Christ, so that we are men and women thoroughly built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ being the first cornerstone. So, to summarize then, the Old Testament is the history of the promises fulfilled in Christ, and Christ believed it was authoritative. The New Testament is the eyewitness testimony and teachings of those who were trained by, commissioned by, and uniquely empowered by Christ to be his apostles and those who knew him. That is why we believe the Bible is authoritative. Now the last thing I'll say, I've said two things, this is the last thing I will say, is that it's, don't just believe the Bible is authoritative, read it as authoritative. Now, we're told in Hebrews that the word of God is active and living, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God there refers to the message of God. So whatever God speaks is living and active. Whether he speaks and that speech becomes flesh, whether he speaks and it is written, or whether he speaks and the gospel is given. It's a living and active. And so, it can change a man. Now, as a personal testimony, and I've, you've heard me say this before, my life was changed because I read the Bible. And it was in college where I reached for my big black King James Bible, leather-bound Bible. And I, because I wanted something that reminded me of home, and that was it. So I started reading. Before that, I was a fair-weather Christian. I, yeah, I, I assented to Jesus Christ. I believed the Bible. But in college, I started reading the Bible every day. And I can tell you by experience that it has been living and active in my life. It has pierced through me, and it has changed who I am. And I, I tell you with confidence that I am not the person that I was becoming when I was 20. Uh, the Lord 
changed the course of my life through the reading of the Word. And I believe that I would have been a different person if I didn't start. And now I'm still on a journey, but the Lord through the Holy Scriptures has, has built me up, has sustained me, has encouraged me, has rebuked me, and it has shaped me. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat, way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. I have felt my inner life be like a tree planted by a stream of water through the daily reading of scripture. It has changed the trajectory of my life over time in imperceivable yet definite ways. So I want to encourage you. It's not enough to believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God. You must internalize it. Shape your life by it. See Christ in it. And obey it. And that's how God has given us to order his life. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Let's pray.